God and His Word. It's a thrill to see everyone. Thank you for you who are visiting with us today. This isn't the church where we stand up and, um, and make you stand up and everyone look at you, uh, but we are acknowledging that you're with us today. It's wonderful that you're here. And uh, this little church family um, loves each other very much because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we've paid close attention to what he said about how we relate to one another. Did you hear me? We love one another very much because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We've paid close attention about how he says we are to relate to one another. We start with him and we end up with one another. And that's the, uh, the secret of true Christian fellowship, which is something we forfeit with God when we commit personal sin. Sin is when we don't do what God said or when we do what God said not to do. Where we, whether it's what we think or what we say or what we do, we need to be accountable to God for this and the solution to the defilement of sin when it dirties us spiritually is the bath, the cleansing that the Lord Jesus offers through the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, says John, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many have wrestled through church history about exactly how that verse applies to uh, Christians. Is that for unbelievers? And they're supposed to be broken about their sins so they confess it. And that's what they, that's not a passage to unbelievers. That's the Apostle John and everybody like him. If we confess our sins, we're not confused about that here. This is for you and me. And it's God's grace that we would be clean when we've been defiled. And yes, uh, as far as the East is from the West, so far as God separated our sins from us in the sense of an eternal relationship. When you first believed in Jesus, you're cleansed and forgiven. And in that sense, there's no going back on that. But you can walk in darkness as a believer. In fact, most believers we know spend a lot of time walking in darkness because the Word of God is challenging, and it's where the growth happens. It's where the light turns on. That's why we assemble today. So if we've got a problem with that darkness, hey, get back in the light. Walk in the light as he's in the light. Let's confess our sins in silent prayer. I'll give you a moment for silent prayer. Our Father, we're captivated by your grace. You've wooed us with your love. And it's a love that did not sacrifice righteousness, but righteousness looked at our sin and judged it through the motivation of your love. And so you sacrificed your Son. Father, we praise you for our King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings us together today, for we are his flock. We are of his fold. And now, Father, let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. We're uh, discussing the unique spiritual life that God has given to Christians in a historical context, in a time in which we live where spirituality is a popular notion and it is mainstream like it hasn't been in American history, really in the Western history, since uh, the Industrial Revolution. We haven't seen spirituality as a popular thing and it's even the secular version, the non-Christian version of this has gone back to the church now, where Oprah Christianity or Oprah spirituality is now mysticism that we're saying is the way we live in 
the church. And that is um, un, unacceptable if we're going to accept the scriptures. Uh, we're going to say a few words to the children and send them downstairs. And uh, while we prepare that, why don't you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. All right, young people, everybody look at Pastor Dave right up here. Look at those eyes. All right. How do you make sure that the person who's speaking to you knows you're listening? Do you know how you do that? How do you do it? You look at them where? Right in the lights. Look at them right in the eyes, and they know that you're tracking. And that's a, that's a very good thing to do, to look at the person that's talking to you. And up on the screen behind me, I'm going to put a picture. What is that? Blueberries. That's exactly right. Don't those look like blueberries? Those are beautiful. They, they are grapes, but they're bright blue, aren't they? There has been no modification of the color tinting of this photograph by the author or the speaker today. Uh, no, these are grapes. They're a specific uh, vintage, a specific type of grape, of species. Um, they're not Concord grapes. They're Merlot grapes. Some of you are telling us way too much when I tell you they're Merlot grapes. All right. Why do I have grapes on the screen? I'll tell you why. Everybody look at me. Because we are in Galatians chapter 5 today. Galatians chapter 5. Who wrote Galatians? The Apostle Paul. Why did he write it? Because we needed it. And also because the churches in Galatia were confused about the Bible, about God's plan, about how we relate to the law of Moses. And Paul wrote this so that the churches in Galatia would be unconfused and so that we would have a very clear understanding of our responsibilities. And I want to lay one responsibility on your shoulders and I want you to say it after me. I want little young people, young at heart, say it after me. Galatians 5.16. Oh, I think we can do a better job than that, can't we, young people? Galatians 5.16. Okay, now that's not a better job. That's a louder job. And somewhere between better and louder, we're going to find good. Okay, now here we go. But I say. Okay, I'm going to say it. You say it back. Okay, we'll try it again. I know we're not trained in this, Pastor. We don't do this responsive reading. What's happening? Very good. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Do you know what the lusts of the flesh are? Do you know what the lusts of the flesh are? It doesn't get louder. It's the speaker. The lusts of the flesh. What's another word for lusts of the flesh? No, that's, that's not it. That's, I know. Everybody's like, ah. That's the affections of the, of the gut. Sorry. Uh, yes. The holy iPad is the lust of the flesh. Now, that is culturally a relevant application of exactly what I'm talking about. The Apple tablet. What else? What's the lust of the flesh? Xbox. Okay. Minecraft. 
It's amazing. It's, it's, like, it's like the Roselands and their associates are in a discussion about idolatry lately. I, I don't know why. Yeah. Now here's the truth. Now listen, yes, sir. Dogs are the. I love them. Hey, we're naming good things. We're just naming all the good things today. Okay. <laughs> iPads and puppies and other good things. Okay. Now here's what Paul's talking about. In us, we have a sinful nature that makes us want to feel like urged to do the things we shouldn't do. What are some things that we shouldn't do? They're called sins, and our sin nature or our flesh makes us want to do those things. What are some things like that you might do with the iPad that would be a sin? Yeah. Touch it when you've been told not to touch it. That would be a sin with the iPad. What? Or you break it over your brother's head. You hurt someone. What can you do with your mouth that would be the, the, the lust of the flesh coming out in sin? Yeah. Saying swears. Saying swears. That's a good one. What else? Yeah. Okay, so saying something bad about someone. When you attack and try to destroy someone with your tongue, you know the Bible says the tongue is a flame of fire. That's in James 3. The Bible says that your tongue is like a sword that can come in and destroy someone and tear them to pieces. Did you know you can do that with what you say? It's amazing what our our mouth can do. What about thoughts? What are some thoughts that our sin nature says to us, do that thought, think that thought, and we don't even know it, and all of a sudden we're there. We're just as dirty and sinful. What's the thought? No, a thought, a thought that you think that you shouldn't think that's a sinful thought. Yeah. Okay, how about if I think, here it is, everybody, this is the one we don't want to look at. I think more highly of myself than I ought to think. Oh, got it. Pride, arrogance, that's the one. Do you suffer from it? Yeah, you got it. Come on, me too. Right there. Do you have it? Do you have it? Yeah. You, can you testify? We struggle with this thinking more highly of ourselves. I don't know about that. We, we, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, you get, yeah, you, just like Bubba. Now, now, this is a problem we all have. And here's, listen, this is, listen, everybody look, look. We're losing it. We're lo- yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. We'll, we'll learn Greek later. All right. Now, listen. Now, listen. Zach. Zach. We're losing it here. We're, we're almost done. Here's what Paul is saying. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he does if you have Christ, and you are walking in dependence, in submission to, in the power of, in obedience to God through the Holy Spirit, do you know what happens? You can't do any of those things. You will not do the things that your sin nature says to do. You will only bring forth the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Did you know that? If you walk in power of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, you can't be arrogant. You can't hate someone. You can't do any of these things, which means, wait a second, if I am hateful or if I'm gossiping or if I'm destroying someone with my words, what am I certainly not doing? I'm not walking by the Spirit. It's one or the other. You cannot do both. Which means what? We better walk by the Spirit and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Who can tell me, young people, what is the fruit of the Spirit? 
Okay, anyone that's not an auctioneer? Yes, sir. That was really good. He does know it, yeah. Beautiful. We, there's nine, uh, nine fruit of the Spirit, and they all, they all grow out of love. They all grow out of love. Uh-oh. Nathan, sit down. Now, we need God to do this in us. We can't do it for ourselves. God has to do it in us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Everybody join me in prayer for these young people. Close eyes. Bow heads. Father, you've given us your spirit to produce the character of Jesus in us. And every one of these young characters here, Father, they all have the Holy Spirit in them if they have Christ. And so, Father, we pray for this fruit to be born in the lives of every one of these children, every one of them to walk worthy of our calling by your spirit. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, young people, you are dismissed to Children's Church downstairs. Walk by the Spirit. Janice, I was thinking of you, actually. All right, so uh, Galatians chapter 5. Let's work through some of this in some detail. This is a fantastic passage. Hopefully, you know to walk by the Spirit. You know about the fruit of the Spirit. But do you know why Paul sang it in Galatians? Do you know the context of the discussion or the logical reasoning through the passage? Now, the reason I've selected this is because I believe the classic location to understand the Christian spiritual life is what Jesus taught his disciples on the last night of his ministry in John chapter 15. And in verses 1 through 11, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. And there's the idea of the fruit that grows on us as we uh, are are connected, as we stay in this uh, connected dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father as the vine dresser. And now, as we go to Galatians, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul, teaches what it is to walk in this new life. What it is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is to walk in a connected dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ with God the Father as your vine dresser. Did you hear it? I just gave you the Trinity. The Father is the vine dresser. The Son is your organic connection to life. That's the vine. And the Holy Spirit is the behind the scenes empowerer who lives in you to bring forth this fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we are toward the end of a letter where Paul is correcting people who have been taught wrongly. They were begun on the right path by the Apostle Paul with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then teachers called Judaizers came behind Paul and took them astray. Paul even calls it that they bewitched them by saying, yes, Jesus is enough as long as you get circumcised. Yes, you need Christ and the Spirit is fine, but you also have to keep the law of Moses. And a lot of the New Testament is committed to showing that the law of Moses had a purpose. It has an abiding purpose, but it is not the regulatory authority over your practice today. That's what the letter to the Galatians is about. In fact, Paul says, if you're going to uh, uh, engage in circumcision as a ritual under the Mosaic law, then you are responsible to keep the whole of the law. And And he says, if you're doing this, you're severing yourselves from Christ. Now, wait a second. Isn't the law holy, righteous, just, and good? It absolutely is. 
Aren't we supposed to not murder? Aren't we supposed to not commit adultery? Aren't the law provisions still binding on us? And here is the answer to that challenging question. The Mosaic law, just keying off of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, is part of God's instruction today for us to teach us about his righteousness. It is instruction in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It is a portrayal of the righteousness of God, the perfect, the righteousness of God that is the very essential character quality, the moral perfection of the God that never changes. That's what the law was given and it was given to show Israel and therefore all the nations where we in our sinfulness fall short of the righteousness of God. In fact, no one ever kept the law except the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they were keeping the law. Jesus showed them again and again. You can read all of Matthew 5 through 7. They didn't keep the law. So the law was given as a demonstration that we need a savior because we fall short of the righteousness of God. And what Jesus came in perfect righteousness to do in our place was to take our sin from us and have it applied to him so that his perfect righteousness could be imputed, declared to us. That's the Christian gospel. That's the book of Romans. It's the book of Galatians. And so what's happened is we have a new order. We are not national Israel under an international code of the Mosaic law that had a purpose that has been fulfilled in Christ and now we need to understand the lawful the righteous use of the law it is against the righteousness of God righteousness of God to murder it is the destruction of the image of God in the face of the living God who made that image and so yeah you don't murder It is against the character of God for us to mix his good righteous things with unclean things. And so the picture of that for Israel was woven garments with different fabric, different threads. If God arbitrarily almost says clean animals and unclean animals, lobster is an unclean animal in God's designation for Israel of their their code so you don't if you're clean and set apart to God you don't engage in sin or uncleanness it's a picture of righteousness and sanctification when we have the story in Acts where Peter's told to eat whatever and Jesus says the food doesn't defile you we're not under this code this regulatory code and yet where the righteousness of God is being taught we take notice Absolutely, we don't mix wickedness and righteousness. Doesn't mean you can't wear polyester. Okay? Now, now under Israel, under the Mosaic Code, you wouldn't because of that illustration, because they're being taught that way. And so we have to be careful watching the Scriptures, and that's kind of an introduction to what's going on in Galatians in the epistle. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free, therefore Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of bondage. Now, this is not bondage to the law per se. It is slavery to our sin nature. It's the enslavement to sin into which everyone is born. We're not sinful uh, because we sinned one time and we got used to it. We're sinful because we're born sinners. We commit sins because we're sinners. 
And so you're born in slavery, and when you're born again, you're freed from the slavery to the sin nature. And Paul says, okay, so you have freedom. You've been born again to freedom. So stand firm in that freedom. Don't give in. And so this is what happens. People say, well, we're not under the law. Woohoo! And then they say something really, really stupid. They say the Mosaic law was legalistic. It was a self-righteous code, which would prop up our self-righteousness. No, the Pharisees, in their abuse of the law, were legalistic. They were self-righteous and wicked. God's perfect law is perfect and righteous and holy and good. Don't do that with the law. We're not under the Mosaic administration. God has a new order for us. And by the way, here's the summary. The walk by the Spirit does not get regulated by the law because the law doesn't condemn any of the righteous acts of the Spirit. Love is not under law. Love is not being regulated and demonstrated to be against God's righteousness. We have a higher order. It's a higher living. It's a higher responsibility, not a, well, we're just broken from the law, so we're doing whatever we want. We're not, in other words, antinomian. In fact, in Galatians 6.2, he says, bear one another's burdens and by this, therefore, fulfill the law of Christ. The law, the law of Christ. We're under law. But it's a law of love. It's a law of the Spirit. It's the walk by the Spirit in, in the power that the Lord Jesus has provided us through the third person of the Trinity. Well, Paul will go through this section here after in verses 2 and following and saying, you have disconnected yourselves. You've misunderstood. And you don't understand what the law is. And you've listened to false teaching. And you need to stop it because as you go back to the law, you're just finding yourselves in your sins under condemnation. But you need to stop with the fleshly sinfulness and walk by the Spirit is the argument. So if we slip our eyes down to verse 13, I'm going to skip the joke in verse 12, where those of you who are telling you to cut off a little piece of skin, I wish they cut themselves off, is what he says in verse 12. But as you go to verse 13, he proposes... What if we were still under the Mosaic law? In verses 13 through 15, verses 13 through 15, what if we were still under the Mosaic law? Now those right there, those grapes right there are gray looking. Gray looking. Pinot means to drink and grigio means gray. These are Pinot Grigio grapes, if you didn't know. But that's what those look like. This whole section of of fruit bearing is always uh, the metaphor of grapes. And that's why I say Paul, the apostle of Jesus, is pulling right out of uh, John 15, and I'm the vine, you're the branches, and bearing fruit. For you were called to freedom, brethren. He refreshes the idea of verse 1. You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, for the sin nature. Okay, that would be going back into slavery to the sin nature. But through love, serve one another. See, you're free to serve. You're free to walk in love. You're free to, uh, to, to be the Lord Jesus Christ uh, expressing himself through you. That's the idea. You are not free from Christ or free from God. You're free from your sin nature's bondage, which the law condemns, to serve. That's the, that's the picture of Christianity. This is the Christian way of life. So through love, serve one another is not given as a great suggestion. It is given as a command. And so he's got a couple of, of, of strong commands here. Now, in verse 14, we have a four. It is an explanatory statement. And what he's doing is saying, what if we were still under the law? Imagine we were still working on the law. For the whole of the Mosaic law is fulfilled in one statement of the Mosaic law. The whole of the law is in Leviticus 19, 18. 
It is fulfilled. You love God, therefore you do what he says. That's the love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6. And then you fulfill that in obeying what he says. He says, love your neighbor. So the whole of the law is fulfilled in Leviticus 19, 18, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the Mosaic administration. It's the order that was abiding on Israel. And it's very similar to our new commandment. We have a law from our lawgiver, the Lord Jesus. It's articulated very clearly in John 13, 34, and 35, where he says in law language, a new commandment in Tole, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, but it's not as yourself that you love one another as I have loved you. That's self-sacrificial. That's not looking at as I love myself. That's I lose myself for your sake. That's the self-sacrificial Christian ethic that is our law of love. So, so he's going back to the law and saying, imagine you're under the Mosaic law. The whole of the Mosaic law is fulfilled and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he's going to contrast, this isn't working out for you who want to get circumcised and pretend like you're under the law. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. See, there's a problem, a moral interactive problem. We need a couple kindergarten teachers in these churches in Galatia to show up and say, can't you people be nice to each other? Can't you share? Stop running with scissors. There was a little girl in my kindergarten class named Melissa. It was more than 1,500 miles away and uh, something like 36 years ago. So we're going to just assume that she's not listening. We're going to assume that she's not listening today. Uh, and if she, if she is, um, that's awesome, actually. But uh, I think Melissa, in re- retrospect, I think she liked me. I think she had a crush on me. It wasn't mutual. And this is probably where the problem came in. I already had a girlfriend. Uh, and so... Um, <laughs> Melissa, you, you think I'm bragging. No, this is, this, this is really sad, right? But so, um, so Melissa would chase me with scissors. Now, we had the kindergarten 1982 scissors that are plastic with a little, little thread, a little ribbon of metal in there, you know? You could still hurt someone with them, and especially if you've got a really wicked delivery, like, I'm going to cut you. That's what Melissa would say to me almost every day. I'm going to cut you and make the blood run out of your veins. And, and it was, it's Texas. It was awesome. Um, she really scared me. I was, I was scared of Melissa. Uh, and I, I, no one had told me, hey, just be nice to her. Just open the door for her. Just say something nice. Hey, I like your ribbons. I like, uh, you know, no one told me to diffuse this. They didn't, I probably didn't tell them. I'm being chased by a girl. She's going to beat me up, cut me open. We just need a couple kindergarten teachers to show up in Galatia and say, quit chasing each other with scissors. Quit being nasty to each other. That's going on in the church. We're going to read about in this passage a little bit. He's going to talk about how they're not getting along. They're not just operating under the ethics of the Mosaic law. They're not loving their neighbors as they love themselves. You know how love your neighbor as you love yourself works? It works like this. Hey, I just stopped by and got a coffee. We'll say it in New English. I got a coffee. And uh, I got you a coffee too. Because I thought, I wanted a coffee, so I got you a coffee. That's how it works. You ever see that person walk up with a fresh Starbucks or fresh Dunkin', whatever, you know, whatever your palate requires, and they show up with a, with a fresh coffee, and, you, and there's only one, and, they're, and, they're, and you're like, hey, how's it going? And there's no question that it's not for you because they take a big drink. You're like, hey, doing fine. How are you? 
Now, that's not Leviticus 19.18 uh, even. That's Galatia ethics. What you're supposed to do in, under the law is show up with another cup and say, hey, how you doing? I got a coffee and you got a coffee. And so I loved you as I love myself. That's the picture. It's really what he's talking about. He doesn't, he's not saying in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor from your own character. That's not what it means. He means love, your, love them as if you got shoes on, give them shoes. You're taking care of your feet, take care of their feet too. It's the baseline ethic of how Israelites were required to deal with one another because they represented the living God who condescended to his creation and revealed himself, beginning in the Moses story with the burning bush. Now, this is the law ethic of Israel, and the Galatians aren't even that. Now, this is scary. Let's, let's do a little, little self-check. Is this the ethic of Preston City Bible Church? Do we do this? Are we even to the level of the ethic of Israel? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because it's not your law. Your law is even higher. Love one another as I've loved you. Now, here's how that works. Okay, so in the New Testament, it definitely is Starbucks. So what happens? I got a coffee, excuse me, I got a coffee because we're now in Texas. I got a coffee. I'm just kidding. I got a coffee and I'm going to um, show up and uh, there you are. And I didn't know I would see you. And I haven't taken a drink yet because whatever, I was shifting. I have a standard shift, whatever. I didn't get a drink yet. It's still got the little tab in. And there you are. And I see you need this coffee about as bad as I do. Maybe not quite as bad. But here's what happens. Hey, how's your day? You get the coffee. But what? where's my coffee? I don't get a coffee. I love you. I love you as Christ has loved me. And that means he gave himself for me so he doesn't get a coffee. I get the coffee. You see, that, that's a silly illustration, but that's the level. That's the ethic. Now, some of you are like, I never heard anything like that. The coffee and illustration of love in Israel and the church. But it does communicate because the self-sacrifice is the difference. He doesn't say love one another as yourself. He says, love one another as I've loved you. Self-sacrificially. And trusting in God, hey, Father, you've got me. I'm just going to give, and, and you trust him. You entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously, and then God backfills you, and all of a sudden, you do have more to give. You do have more to love with. That's the Christian ethic. Now, Paul, back to Galatia. If you, if you people can't live under the moral precept of the Mosaic law, you need something better. You need something that actually enables you. And by the way, Israel didn't do this either. Have you ever read the book of Jonah? Jesus asked the Israelites, who's my neighbor? The Samaritan would be the one who was the neighbor. Okay, I'm pretty sure the Ninevites are to be considered neighbors in Jonah. Jesus is, is preaching out of Jonah when he says, who's my neighbor? What's the book of Jonah about? Well, it's the big fish. The book of Jonah is a portrait of Israel where they don't love with the love of God. And they don't want to see people come to God. That's the story. Jonah is bitter through the whole play, through the whole story. He's the missionary who won't go. I don't want to go to the Ninevites. And then when he gets there, I don't want them. Lord, destroy them. They're the wicked Assyrians who have hurt my people. God says, don't you know there are babies in town? Don't you care about these people? That's the attitude of, of, of God toward Israel. And they need to adjust their attitude. They need to change their thinking to be like God the Father. That's what's happening in Jonah. And that's 700s B.C. 
Okay, this is not new when Jesus shows up and says, you missed it, you completely missed the law. Well, the Galatians are just like that because nobody ever fulfilled the law. No one ever loved their neighbor like they were supposed to. No one ever loved the Lord their God with all their heart like they're supposed to. No one ever, no one ever thought purely righteous thoughts about their brother. No one ever uh, failed. No one ever failed to murder someone through a thought. Now, Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, that's the same problem against the law as murder. So you might not have killed someone, but you've thought daggers towards someone. Well, that's it. No one ever kept the law. And so the Galatians need to be taught that. That's the context for the walk by the Spirit passage that we're at next. We are not under the law is the contrast in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. The major contrast, we're under a different order, a different responsibility, and that's why he says, but I say. He uses that same word, de, to to make a, a contrast, but now it's, but I say. It's a strong contrast. Now, understand, I'm trying to build in your thinking the category that that I'm building in my thinking, the category of Christian spirituality, what it is to walk in this life, because I know this is the walk by the Spirit passage. But you have to understand in its context to see what's going on. This is, this is spirituality. Our spirituality is not the Ten Commandments. It's higher than the Ten Commandments. It's higher than the Ten Commandments. So in verse 16, as we had with the children, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire or the lust of the flesh. Now that walk by the Spirit, what does that mean, to walk by the Spirit? There are several possible meanings, including in Greek, it could mean, here he is and I walk by him. That's not what it means. It can mean walk in him like the Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of makes a bubble, like a sphere is the way the Greek scholars talk about it, where you're walking in a sphere of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's kind of putting a sphere around me. I don't think that's what it means. It could mean, it could mean that, that he provides a sphere that, that, that Paul means there, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Because one of these is the flesh and one of these is the Spirit. The flesh is judged by the law. The Spirit is higher than the law. Okay, the flesh, walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit means that you're walking in the influence and power provided by the spirit of God. It's a dependency upon an enablement from God. That's what he means, walk by the spirit. And that's why I like this translation from the New American Standard, walk by the spirit, walk by the means supplied by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a dependency. Does that sound familiar? Dependency. Where have we heard dependency in Christian spirituality? Abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit. You stay connected and dependent on Jesus as the source of your fruitfulness, of your life. You can't bear fruit as a branch if you're cut off from the plant. You're going to wither and die. So stay connected. That's John 15. It's the same idea here. Walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his power and his capability. Also, as we saw first hour with Ryan in, in his leading there is a leading ministry of the Holy Spirit stated in Romans 8 and also in Galatians chapter 5 that I do not believe means if I feel like it, God said it. So if I don't obey my feelings, then I'm not obeying God. I don't think that's how it works. But there is the work of the Spirit through the Word of God, through my conscience, through the circumstances that surround me where I realize God is ordering history and I walk in dependence upon him. I challenge you to live your life in wisdom according to the word of God more than, much more than emotional leanings. And I'll tell you why. If you get into emotional leanings, you will focus on that and not the word. 
It will be how you feel and not what God said. And the horrible thing then, now you're into new age spirituality. What I feel is God. What I feel is what God said. And I know this, I, li- I walk with you in this life. I know what this is like to have a desire or an interest or a feeling or something that you want and then to find a way to rationalize and blame it on God. Don't do that. Be in the word. Go with the wisdom method of what has God said? What does he want? And the answer is he wants you to love. He wants you to love in his power. He wants you to depend on him. And he wants you to be about his mission, his mission of making disciples. You know these are the watchwords. So you know a lot about the decisions that you need to make. But Paul says, I walk by the Spirit. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or carry out the desire of the flesh. One other thing I want to say, this is really, really interesting to me. And in the Greek, it says, you will not not walk or carry out the desire of the flesh. You will not, and then it says, be able. You will not have the potential. You have a doubling, ume, two negatives. You will not not. And then the mood of the verb to carry out is potential. It's the, it's, it's the um, subjunctive mood. So ume plus the subjunctive. You're like, uh, you just left us. This is Sunday morning. It's not Tuesday night, Pastor. Okay, now watch. Now watch this. All I'm saying is you can't bring it out in an English translation. If I, if I translated what's going on here in the English, it would end up being a paraphrase. And here's what it would sound like. You will absolutely in no possible way be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what it means. That's what the Greek is, is saying. And so that, sometimes I'm like, maybe a paraphrase is in order. Or maybe we just learn the language and preach it. The point is that if you have the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat, you can't sin. You can't. Oh, there we go, Pastor. I haven't sinned since 1984. (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that when you commit personal sins, you know the Holy Spirit is not to blame. Maybe the Holy Spirit wants me to. I mean, it feels right. He doesn't. No. The Holy Spirit is not at odds with himself. Your Holy Spirit doesn't disagree with my Holy Spirit because actually it's the Holy Spirit and we belong to him. So the answer to the problem of what about my personal sin? If, if you're in dependence, if you're depending on the Spirit of God and walking, you're not bringing forth the fruit of the flesh. And when you are bringing forth the fruit of the flesh, you can guarantee that you have severed yourself somehow from the operational work of Christ in your life. Well, but wait, 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 wait. Are you saying I lost my salvation? No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying that, that, you, that, that somehow the Holy Spirit leaves me? No, you're not, you're, you're not in that order. You're in an age in which uh, God says the Spirit has come in you to abide in your heart forever. In other words, the different ministries of the Spirit are different. He never stops indwelling you. You never stop being the temple of the Holy Spirit, Corinthians, but you can defile that temple. You can make it dirty. So what are, we, what are we to conclude here? Well, here's the beautiful thing. When you're wrong and you know God said, don't do this, but I feel like doing this, so I do it. The lust gives, gives me an opportunity to make a bad choice and I commit a personal sin. Guess what? The Holy Spirit has, on the one hand, I believe, made you aware that that was the issue. And then you made a choice. You broke the partnership. You said no to God. You broke fellowship with him. And that's what Paul says in Galatians. You are severed from Christ. You've fallen from grace. These people have the Holy Spirit in Galatians 3. They didn't lose their salvation by Galatians 5. The point is that you who have Christ, you're supposed to walk 
in abiding in Christ and dependence on the Spirit. And when you break with that, it's called a personal sin. Look for it. Now, what do we do about personal sin? You confess it. We talk about it all the time because it's the constant challenge of our lives. You never are going to lose the urge, the, sin, the inner flesh temptation to sin. There are times when you will feel stronger about some aspects of your sin nature and feel like, I don't have to do that. I don't feel like doing that. And other times when other aspects will come flaring up at you and you'll be like, I don't know how I could not do this thing that my sin nature wants me to do. And the answer is walk by the Spirit and it will be absolutely impossible for you to carry out the lust of the flesh. So what do I do if, I, if I'm under that temptation? Well, you need to be in the Word. You need to be in prayer. And you need to trust God through that temptation. And it's very challenging. Well, what do I do if I succumb to that temptation? Now, my spiritual life's over, right? No, you've shipwrecked. No, you have uh, left the light, entered darkness, and you need to enter the light again. And that's 1 John chapter 1. Fellowship with God is the birthright to which we've been born again. And when we resist it, when we deny it, when we say, no, I'm not going to abide in Christ, I'm not going to saturate myself with his word, I'm not going to obey what he said, I'm not going to walk in the power of his spirit, darkness. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The defilement gets removed. That operational, functional fellowship separation has been resolved. And so that's, that's called the isolation of sin. You deal with personal sin and it's not, never get callous about it. Never be like, well, I you know, I'm just going to confess it. Never confess beforehand, Lord, I'll see you in a little bit. It's absurd. It's absurd. Now, here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because there is an evaluation. There is an evaluation coming. And if you watch the language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 closely, he doesn't say that you'll be judged by Jesus as a Christian for the works that you've done in the flesh, whether human good or sin or, or, or divine good. He doesn't say that. He says whether good or bad. The works that you've done in the flesh, whether good or bad. In other words, redeem the time for the days are evil, meaning short. There's not much time in this life to serve him, and the tape's running. When you find that battle of the flesh where you're saying no to the sin nature and you're saying yes to God in the power of the Holy Spirit, don't misunderstand. You are winning a battle that is getting recorded for the coming evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the lust of the flesh. And then he explains it. There's an inner war going on that I've referred to many times. For the flesh, that's the old sin nature, as we call it, the sin nature. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What's he talking about? If you're trying to keep the law. Nobody ever kept the law because it's perfect and good and righteous. But you've got an inner war that says don't obey God. Do it your way. Have your own way with whatever. And so you can't keep the law, even if you want to, Pharisees. This is why Jesus said the Pharisee that blows the trumpet and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. He's not with God. It's the man that's on his knees, beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's the person that understands the law. That's why the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. See that, what, Why? Because they recognize their poverty. Because they see that we need a Savior. We need someone to save us from our sin. That's what the law did. It showed you your sin, and then Jesus took it away. But if you are, here it is in verse 18, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, that's God the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
right there. If you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're not under the law. That's not talking about you and your personal sins. That's talking about you and your fellowship with God as you depend on the Spirit, as you stay connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, as you're consciously dependent on Him and the power that He's given you through the Holy Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here's what my my little comment is. In the Spirit, you don't do the works of the flesh. In the Holy Spirit, you don't do the works of the flesh. So the law doesn't judge those works because you're not doing those works of the flesh. There's no law condemnation on the work of the Spirit. In verse 19, that's cab, those are cab, cab, Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. The next step in the argument in the flesh law way is he lists the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh, what the flesh does is evident. We know this. What does the flesh do? And these are the sins which the law condemns. This is why this is even taught. They're trying to go back to the law. and you're, you're doing the things the law condemns, but you're not doing the things that the Spirit produces in you. So these are evident. Which are? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. I put them in a category. I'm going to hit return because those are three sexual categorical names. They're different words for the same type of problem. And now I get to preach sin because <laughs> it comes up right here in the passage. This is where we with our bodies say what God has ordered is not for me, but I'll do it my way. I see what the animals do. I am a mammal and after the flesh, and therefore I will be uh, like an animal. That's the popular morality of our time. It's not really the popular morality of our time because in the animal kingdom, consent is not a moral issue. It's whatever you can get away with in the animal kingdom. I just saw in a news report, we were with the kids of the zoo the other day, a male lion uh, and a female lion in an enclosure over at Southwick in Massachusetts. A great little day with the zoo. And um, the, the lions were very active, and we were able to get them to roar at us, which was fantastic. And then um, the female got too close to the wire and burned her nose on the wire. And I think it might have been she was after my aftershave. I'm not sure. But anyway... Um, she burned, let's just see if you're listening. She burned her nose on the wire and then ran off to her little uh, lay down spot that was right in the middle of the enclosure we could all see. And the male lion somehow took an interest. And I think he saw that she was a little bit weakened by the encounter. She was hurt. And then all of a sudden he's trying to get, I guess, whatever he could get out of the situation. He walks over there. He's like, it's on, you know, hey, I'm here. And, um, and it was a beautiful, a big old beautiful young male lion. His mane was just about to turn black. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous creature. As soon as she sees the shadow, feels a shadow of him over her, she is, she's trying to tear his, tear his face off. She is going nuts. And I guess I'm like, wow, I guess they've had this conversation before. <laughs> and I, I, I think it was about mating. I'm not sure. I don't know what goes on in the fall, but uh, I haven't read up on my lion life cycle stuff. But anyway, whatever he was, she, he was, she was weakened and he was over there to, to pay her some attention and she wasn't having it. And it be, almost became a fight. And, um, and uh, if you know anything about lions, the females are the hunters. The males are the lazy, you know, slap the kids around. But the, but the females get all the work done and it's, it's really inverted. Anyway, so what happens is um, today in the news, there's a, a, where is it, in Indianapolis, I think, or somewhere like that, uh, a female lion in the same type of enclosure kill, killed a, a male lion with whom the, the two had had three cubs together in, in, in captivity. They, they, they saw there was a lion fight and somebody couldn't get the fire hose or the water hose on him fast enough or something. And she killed, she suffocated him like lions do out in the wild. She caught his neck and 
clamp down. That's what they do. They clamp down on the throat of the other thing like a pit bull and suck out and suffocate them. And, the, and the, they did the postmortem on the, the male, and he had been suffocated. And um, <clears throat> uh, we want to say that in our culture, um, the only morality in sexuality is consent. That's the only morality. Now, the lions don't know anything about consent. They just know about what they can get away with. See what I mean? The one, uh, neither male got away with anything in the story. One of them died, okay? And we're like, good, that was a righteous kill, whatever was going on there, right? Because we believe in the morality of consent, and I do. I'm a capital punishment for a rape person. I think that's, that's wisdom because you'll never, it's a great deterrent. Whoever commits rape will never do it again. Beautiful. I love it. I, I, I'm a man with children, and I love people, and I love God's image. And so when you destroy the image of God, hey, Genesis 9, let's destroy the image of God together, okay, when, when that happens. So, um, but, but the culture that we're in right now wants to say that the only morality sexually is consent. And you can't do that from a biblical perspective. Consent is part of our moral fabric, but it's not the only morality. What we should ask is, what does God consent to? What does God want sexually for us what's his plan for us sexually right here he doesn't want us to commit porneia that's what that word immorality is you know what porneia is it's the act of marriage outside of marriage boom that's what porneia means that's what paul means when he says this word that is often translated fornication what is that well it's a sin it's when we do what God designed for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, but we ain't married, to put it into the vernacular. That's it. Now, wait, is that about male and male or male and female or female? And fe- it doesn't say because that is the issue. It's, it's sex that is not bounded by God's design, his covenant of marriage. And, that, and pay attention because at the end of verse 19, these will forfeit your inheritance. You don't do these things. Impurity, sensuality, they're all referring to the same problem. That is a problem for all of us. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if you want to associate with, quit making noise. Yeah. If you want to associate with people that aren't doing this, you have to leave planet Earth. It's, every, it's the ethic of the world. Everyone does this. Except Christians, we don't do this. We recognize God's institution of marriage. We fear him. We recognize our bodies belong to him, and we want to honor him. I, I, could, I got a lot to say about this issue. If you think that, well, but we've got to try it out before we get married, or any of the arguments, I can show you good science. These don't work. It's not right, and it's self-destructive. When you go from the sexual sins, which we like to really emphasize, because those are, these are bad, we're going to find the church sins, the stuff that you get away with in church is going to be a long, much longer list. But then he goes into idolatry and sorcery. These are related things. Sorcery is referring to anything that has to do with mystical knowledge garnering that is not from God. Mediums, spiritists, even the Long Island medium. Yeah, right here. Stay away. Ouija boards. This stuff is real. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a war on and it's about Satan and his demons fighting God. And you're not supposed to get information from demons. Paul will call, same writer calls them doctrines of demons. Avoid it. Danger. Will Robinson. Stay away from these things. 
This is destructive to you. And, uh, well, but I just want to kind of see what my horoscope says. Just kind of see what the day's going to... That's demons talking to you. Don't listen. The whole point is information. It, it, well, I'm not like worshiping. It's information. You don't need revelation that you're not getting from God. Enmity, here's this church sin. These are the Baptist ones. Okay. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. These are things you can all do in a three-piece suit. You can do all these things with just the right length of your skirt, ladies. These are things you can do with nobody knowing that you're doing them, many of them. You can envy and nobody knows except God. But these will destroy your soul. These are the sins that amount to social disruption and discord. And so I think it's these sins. These are why we, we protect ourselves. It's these. We're protecting ourselves from somebody looking down on me, from somebody getting into my business, someone getting in my affairs. We start building walls of made-up doctrines of privacy that never occur in the Bible. And then all of a sudden, we're not known, we're not related, we're not interconnected, and we're not obeying Jesus Christ and bearing one another's burdens. Because of the church sins, because of what people do to others. I have a friend who says, you will be hurt in church more than anywhere else in your life. Church folks will hurt you. He's an ardent church attender. He's a church person, but church folks will hurt you. Why? Because of the church sins. The tongue will destroy you. Someone will tear you apart. And it'll be a wonderful, as I like to say, opportunity for you to grow. (laughs) As you take your attention off of the destruction that's offered, and you put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you let him love you so that you can love the other person despite their sinfulness. You don't have to be defiled by someone else's sin, but it takes a lot of faith. It takes a little bit of an adjustment to to get there. Drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I didn't have room on the slide to hit return again. Drunkenness, carousing. I believe drunkenness is when you drink too much. Carousing is when you not go out and play with your friends. I believe the word here is referring to eating too much. That preacher who's about 300 pounds overweight, who's rattling off about people drinking alcohol, he needs to shut up. Because it's overconsumption. It's being consumed by something that is supposed to be received in moderation, like food. Like food. Now, how does carousing get translated this way? Because when you're out having a good time, you eat. The evening requires uh, energy and to go out and, uh, and run around. And so I believe that the point here is over-drinking, over-eating. Uh, in, in Israel, as we saw last week with, with Pastor Todd's talk on, uh, on the Feast of Israel, one of, the annual, one of the annual tithes was so that they could have a big feast. God doesn't oppose enjoying life or enjoying uh, the, the blessings of creation. It's just like with Paul in Philippians chapter 4. We need to learn how to get along with, with and without. Let's close this down with Shirah grapes. What does the Spirit produce which the law does not condemn? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this is the contrast. You're either sinful and the law does condemn personal sin or you're carrying out the fruit of righteousness which the law doesn't regulate. The Mosaic Law says nothing about your love for one another as Christ loved you. Now, about this fruit of the Spirit, the fruit is singular. That doesn't mean that they're all the same thing. But I want you to watch this list. Love, joy, peace, patience. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll do in third hour. In other words, we won't get to it today. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love rejoices in righteousness. Love does all the things in the list. These are all telescoped out of love. Those are descriptions, not definitions, descriptions of love, what love does. True Christian agape love is patient. It is rejoicing. It does produce peace. It does exercise, exude kindness. It is, this is, in other words, the character of Jesus Christ brought forth in you, amazingly, miraculously, even through me and the power of the Holy Spirit, which means I can disagree with you on something that's very important to me, and I can still love you, want the best for you, not kick you to the curb in my thinking and try to avoid you, which is what the world does. The world does the cut and run ethic. We don't cut and run, we deal. The next step, he says in verse 24, now those who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's why you're not under the law because Christ fulfilled the law. So the law that judged sin and the flesh is no longer relevant in the sense that you've been crucified with Christ. We've crucified the flesh, the sin nature with its passions and desires. Does that mean that we don't have a sin nature anymore? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you don't have to obey it. It's no longer to have its authority over you. If we live by the Spirit, that's regeneration. That's the new birth. When you first believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit makes a new spirit in you. You're new, a new creature in Christ in uh, Ephesians 2.10. If we live by the Spirit, listen to what he does. Let us also walk by the Spirit. If you think I'm making this more complicated than it needs to be, that this is about Christians and how they perform or don't perform, what, is, what do you do with that? If we live by the Spirit, that's your new life. Let us also walk by the Spirit. You're born, now get up and do. Be, be who you're supposed to be. So you have life at regeneration, the new birth, you can't lose it, but then you're responsible to walk in the power the Holy Spirit provides. Isn't that beautiful? It's a whole package. Christian spirituality is about that second statement. You who live by the Spirit, be spiritual. Walk by the Spirit. Fulfill the, the, the fruit of the Spirit as you abide in Christ and the Holy Spirit bears it in you. And what does that look like functionally? In verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That's what's going on in Corinth, the church sins. Arrogance, boastfulness, envying, challenging. Uh, this is what you tragically see in church. Today at Preston City Bible Church, you saw something that some would, would argue could never happen. Two men gifted as pastor teachers got up in the same organization and taught two different messages that coincided together in love with, uh, with the Lord Jesus and with love for one another to edify the body of Christ. How can that be? What is this, some sort of Bible conference? No, this is Preston City Bible Church. You know what you get in a church? You get all these people, every one of you, who has Jesus Christ. You know what else you have in Ephesians chapter 4? Every one of you has Christ. You know what you got? You got a spiritual gift. The minute you believed in Jesus Christ, you were born again. And part of that new birth included a spiritual gift, an enablement from God, so that you would be able to serve in a special capacity, so that you would love with that character of Christ in a special way for the edifying and building up of the body of Christ. Every one of us has at least one spiritual gift. The lists are kind of almost random sounding when you go through the list in 1 Corinthians 13 and um, uh, 12 and 14 and in uh, Romans chapter 12. The list of gifts, the, 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 where the gifts, gifts are listed, they're, they're not complete. It's like the list of sins. It's things like these. 
Don't worry about what your gift is. Worry, if you want to worry. I mean, Christian worry. Concern yourself for how do I grow into what I'm to be so that I can express that gift. You grow through the Word. You grow through the intake and application, the living out of the Word of God. And that requires a constant faith in the God of the Word. That requires a a vibrant spiritual walk in the power of the Spirit. And as you grow spiritually, that giftedness is going to express itself. And you will be functioning in the edifying of the saints in the capacity that you're supposed to. It's awesome. It is an awesome thing to see that God can actually use me. He's got work that he wants me to do, and I want to do it. And I'm not going to give you, I don't don't believe in taking a quiz. If somebody approaches you with a Scantron sheet and a number two pencil and says, let's figure out your spiritual gifts together, I say run. I've got friends that say, no, no, you can learn what your gift is. I I don't like it. I don't, I don't, the guy that wrote the test doesn't know what your gift is. The Holy Spirit knows what your gift is. Well, Holy Spirit's in that guy. Not in the Bible. We didn't need Scantron to get invented so we could know what our gifts were for 2,000 years. This has been going on all along. See, the gifts in this church function. And uh, what's the point of giftedness? Love, that we express love toward one another. The best way I can love you. And I'll close with this thought. The best, the very best way I can love you is to consider what God does with you at the judgment seat of Christ. And what God does with you at the judgment seat of Christ is all about what you did with the life he gave you. And what you do with the life he gives you depends on the relationship you have with Christ, and that depends on your consistent intake and application of the word of God. So how do I relate to that? I teach. I teach, and I'm not just teaching a word. My, my mission, Jesus has given all of us, our mission is to teach you to keep all that Jesus has commanded. Not just what he said, but how do we do it? What does it look like? The best way I can love you is to teach the word of God for your growth and your use. In other words, I'm here to equip you just like you're here and we're all here to equip one another. Love one another with your giftedness so that we're not like the Galatians missing the point of our spiritual life. We're actually living it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Closing moments this morning we devote to anyone who may be in the hearing my voice without Christ. This could be the moment of eternal life for you, and it's really between you and God. We bow our head and close our eyes because the scriptures say the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the conviction and the issue about what I must do to be saved is what do you do with Jesus Christ? We have many statements in Scripture about what you do with Jesus Christ. What are the works that I can do to inherit life? You can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer, as we heard first hour, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The Apostle John, same book, or not same book, the Apostle John says uh, in John 3, God so loved the world, that's the Father, so loved you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, that's to be separated from God eternally, but have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? What do you mean as my Savior? The problem with us is we're sinful, we are sinners, and what we can do about our sin is really nothing. But what has been done about our sin is that God the Son came in the flesh of man to die on the cross, and your sins were poured out on him and judged. He who knew no sin 
was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died in your place on the cross. He paid for your sins. And if you believe in him as your savior, the one who died for your sins, you have eternal life. And how can I bring this, this claim? How can I say that you can have eternal life right now? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He, the way, the truth, and the life, rose on the third day after paying for your sins. And he offers you eternal life from his father. Our Father, we thank you for this eternal life from our risen Savior, where he lives ever to make intercession for us. And I pray for everyone here, everyone in, of our families, of our friends, everyone in the hearing of my voice, Preston, Connecticut, the United States, and really, Father, for the entire world, we pray for your gospel to go forward. We pray for your spirit to bring conviction. And in our community, Father, a reformation. Help us adjust our hearts back as a civilization to your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.